Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. Yeah, I had uh, become fascinated with the world of flight as a, as a as an elementary school student, and uh, determined that uh, somehow I wanted to be involved in that. And, and as I uh, learned uh, more about aviation, I thought design that. That would be the epitome of, a, of an aeronautical career to be a designer, and uh, so that's what I that's what I studied. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. That was Neil Armstrong describing his first fascination with flight. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 206 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Commander Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong was born on August 5, 1930, to Stephen Koenig Armstrong and Viola Louise Engel in Oglazy County, near Wapakoneta, Ohio. He was of Scottish, Irish, and German ancestry, and had two younger siblings, June and Dean. His father, Stephen, worked as an auditor for the Ohio State government. Therefore, the family moved around the state repeatedly after Armstrong's birth, living in 20 different towns. Uh, my, my father was an auditor, and uh, he audited the uh, books of uh, county governments or, or across the state where we lived, uh, the state of Ohio. And uh, so we, we were a transient group. My father moved the family along with him as he moved around the state while we were young. And, uh, and uh, I think they, they were very accommodating. They allowed me to do, uh, pursue my own interests and uh, and I'm forever grateful that they uh, gave me that freedom. They didn't try to dictate to me what, what I should do or where I should go. When Neil was two years old, his father took him to a flying event called the Cleveland Air Races. This could have been the beginning of Neil's love for flying. When he was five, he experienced his first airplane flight in Warren, Ohio on July 20th. 1936, when he and his father took a ride in a Ford Trimotor, also known as the Tin Goose. During his childhood, Neil had a great love affair with airplanes. He built airplane models and tested them in a homemade wind tunnel. Neil's father's last move was in 1944, back to Neil's birthplace, Wapakoneta. There, Neil held many jobs around town, especially at the local airport, 
because of his interest in aviation. Armstrong attended Bloom High School and took flying lessons at the grassy Wapakoneta Airfield. He earned a student flight certificate on his 16th birthday, then soloed later in August. He accomplished this before he had an automobile driver's license. To succeed in aeronautics, Neil had to overcome a heightened fear of death. Well, uh, I, I think uh, many younger people are uncomfortable with the thought of death, uh, whether it be themselves, their relatives, or their pets. Mm. And, uh, and uh, I've shared that, that uneasiness about uh, facing the reality of death. Uh, and uh, it took me uh, some years to, uh, to s- sort of circumvent that, uh, that concern. Like many astronauts, Armstrong was also active in the Boy Scouts and earned the rank of Eagle Scout. As an adult, he was recognized by the Boy Scouts of America with its Distinguished Eagle Scout Award and Silver Buffalo Award. On July 18, 1969, while flying towards the moon inside the Columbia, Armstrong greeted the Boy Scouts and said, quote, I'd like to say hello to all my fellow scouts and scouters at Farragut State Park in Idaho having a national jamboree there this week, and Apollo 11 would like to send them best wishes, end quote. Houston replied, quote, Thank you, Apollo 11. I'm sure that if they didn't hear that, they'll get the word through the news. Certainly appreciate that. End quote. Among the very few personal items that Neil Armstrong carried with him to the moon and back was a World Scout badge. Now moving on to Neil's college years. Due to his natural interest in aviation, in 1947, at age 17, Armstrong began studying aeronautical engineering at Purdue University. He was only the second person in his family to attend college. Additionally, Neil was accepted to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, but the only engineer he knew who had attended MIT dissuaded him from attending, telling Armstrong that it was not necessary to go all the way to Cambridge, Massachusetts for a good education. Neil's college tuition was paid for under the Holloway Plan. The plan required successful applicants to commit to two years of study followed by three years of service in the U.S. Navy, then completion of the final two years of the degree. Neil earned average marks in his subjects with a GPA that rose and fell. Meanwhile, the Navy could not wait for the entire two years and Neil was called up on January 26, 1959. The Navy ordered Armstrong to report to Naval Air Station Pensacola for flight training at age 18. This lasted almost 18 months during which he qualified for carrier landing aboard the USS Cabot and the USS Wright. 
on Wednesday, August 16, 1950, two weeks after his 20th birthday, Armstrong earned his wings and was informed by letter that he was fully qualified as a naval aviator, making him the youngest pilot in his squadron. Neal's first assignment was to Fleet Aircraft Service Squadron 7 at Naval Air Station San Diego. Two months later, he was assigned to Fighter Squadron 51 and All Jet Squadron. Armstrong made his first flight in a jet on January 5, 1951. The jet he flew was the F-9F Panther. In June, he made his first jet carrier landing on the USS Essex and was promoted the same week from midshipman to ensign. By the end of the month, the Essex had set sail with his fighter squadron aboard bound for Korea where the squadron would act as ground attack aircraft. Armstrong first saw action in the Korean War on August 29, 1951 as an escort for a photo reconnaissance plane over Songjin. Five days later, on September 3rd, he flew armed reconnaissance over the primary transportation and storage facilities south of the village of Meijon-ni, west of Wonsan. While making a low bombing run at about 350 miles per hour, Armstrong's F-9F Panther was hit by anti-aircraft fire. While trying to regain control, he collided with a pole at a height of about 20 feet, which sliced off about 3 feet of the Panther's right wing. Armstrong flew the plane back to friendly territory, but due to the loss of the aileron, ejection was his only safe option. He planned to eject over water and await a rescue by Navy helicopters, and therefore flew to the airfield near Pohang, but his ejection seat parachute was blown back over land. A jeep driven by a roommate from flight school picked Armstrong up. It is unknown what happened to the wreckage of Armstrong's plane. The risks in combat are substantial, and I, and I think in general they are higher risks than uh, I faced in my uh, test pilot work or in my astronaut work. Uh, and the consequences are, are severe. Uh, and uh, there, there's a, a, a a good side and a bad side. The bad side is that uh, you lose colleagues, and, uh, and, and that's painful. Uh, good side is you, have, you create very strong bonds with, uh, the, with your colleagues that, uh, that survive, mm -hmm. and those, uh, those bonds exist throughout your lifetime. And, uh, and I, I value those experiences very highly because they uh, they build a lot of character, they build a lot of backbone, and you are a better person for having uh, having learned to endure those that that environment, that situation, and those risks. All told, Armstrong flew seventy eight missions over Korea for a total of one hundred and twenty one hours in the air, 
most of which were in January 1952. He received the Air Medal for 20 combat missions, a gold star for the next 20 missions, and the Korean Service Medal and Engagement Star. Armstrong left the Navy at age 22 on August 23, 1952, and became a lieutenant junior grade in the U.S. Naval Reserve. He remained in the Reserve for eight years, then resigned his commission on October 21, 1960. After Armstrong's service with the Navy, he returned to Purdue and earned his best grades in the four semesters following his return from Korea. His final GPA was 4.8 out of 6.0. He pledged the Phi Delta Theta fraternity after his return, and he wrote and co-directed its musical as part of the All-Student Review. He was also a member of Kappa Kappa Psi, National Honorary Band Fraternity, and a baritone player in the Purdue All-American Marching Band. While attending Purdue, he met Janet Elizabeth Sheeran, who was majoring in home economics. According to the couple, there was no real courtship, and neither could remember exactly the circumstances of their engagement, except that it occurred while Armstrong was working at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the NACA, at Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory. Armstrong graduated in 1955 with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering. Neil and Janet were married on January 28, 1956 at the Congregational Church in Wilmot, Illinois. Janet never finished her degree, a fact she regretted later in life. The couple had three children together, Eric, Karen, and Mark. In June 1961, daughter Karen was diagnosed with a malignant tumor of the middle part of her brain stem. X-ray treatment slowed its growth, but her health deteriorated to the point where she could no longer walk, or talk. Two-year-old Karen died of pneumonia related to her weakened health on January 28, 1962. After his graduation from Purdue in 1955, Armstrong decided to become an experimental research test pilot. He applied at the NACA high-speed flight station at Edwards Air Force Base. Although the committee had no open positions, it forwarded his application to the Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory in Cleveland, where Armstrong began working in 1955. Armstrong's stint at Cleveland lasted a couple months, and by July 1955 he had returned to Edwards Air Force Base for a new job. Here's Neil describing the job of a test pilot. The, the test pilot is solving problems. He's looking for inadequacies or shortcomings or uh, barriers to uh, substantial safety and increasing performance in, in flight. 
and his job is to uh, identify those problems and assist in finding a solution. So it's a problem-solving job, and uh, you're always working with the unknowns. And I found that a, uh, a fascinating part part of my uh, career path. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to contribute in some way to uh, the solution of problems. The history of humanity has been, you know, slowly increasing the, the, the boundaries of knowledge and knowing more and more and more and feel comfortable inside there. But at the edges, it's always going to be a challenge. In the summer of 1955, at Edwards Air Force Base, a small group of pilots were exploring the unknown of high-speed flight for the NACA. Edwards was a place of blast furnace heat, howling winds, and utter desolation. But it was a heaven on earth for pilots. Dawn came still and clear, spilling over distant mountain ranges onto a smooth, hard expanse of clay that seemed as vast as the cloudless blue sky above. Armstrong grew to love the dawn at Edwards and reveled in its short-lived serenity. It was short-lived because on any given morning, the stillness was shattered by the sonic booms of pilots unleashing the most exotic flying machines in existence. Somehow, the primitive beauty of Edwards was the perfect backdrop to the unfolding of the future, and it was the perfect place for Neil Armstrong. NACA's high-speed flight station was perched on the edge of Rogers Dry Lake. The NACA pilots epitomized a new breed of test pilots. Engineers as much as aviators, they had emerged since the Second World War. Unlike the Air Force pilots at Edwards, who seemed to treat a new airplane as if it were a romantic conquest, losing interest as soon as they used it to set a record. The NACA pilots delved into lengthy, often tedious analysis that was the heart and soul of the test flight. The combination of meticulous research and all kinds of flying opportunities, the mundane as well as the exotic, was what made Edwards a place to be cherished. Armstrong would look back on his years at Edwards as the most fascinating period of his life. There were two things about Armstrong that the other NACA pilots found remarkable. Not his flying. He was a skilled aviator with an impressive grasp of aerodynamics, but there were better stick-and-rudder men at Edwards. No, the first thing they noticed was his intellect. Everything he did, even casual speech, seemed to be the result of a great deal of thought. The second thing was his remoteness. Armstrong often kept people at arm's length. He rarely engaged in idle conversation and steadfastly guarded his privacy. In time, the NACA pilots realized that Armstrong wasn't aloof. He was shy. Once they got past his general reserve, they found him warm. Once he became a friend, he was a good friend. If he could be reticent, then he could also become so involved in conversation while driving that his passengers nervously eyed the road. 
Under the serious layers lurked a tart and understated wit. If he was a consummate loner, then it was also true that a post-flight party in full swing usually saw Armstrong at the piano pounding out a bit of ragtime. He might be the last to leave, but even his friends could only guess at what Armstrong was thinking. What really drove him, as fellow NACA veteran Milt Thompson said years later, quote, I knew him, but I didn't know him, End quote. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. On Neil's first day at Edwards, he was tasked with his first assignments to pilot chase planes during releases of experimental aircraft from modified bombers. He also flew the modified bombers and on one of these missions had his first flight incident at Edwards. On March 22, 1956, Armstrong in a Boeing B-29 Superfortress was to airdrop a Douglas D-558-2 Skyrocket. Armstrong sat in the right-hand pilot seat, while the left-hand seat commander, Stan Butchert, flew the B-29. As they ascended to 30,000 feet, the number four engine stopped, and the propeller began windmilling, or rotating freely, in the airstream. Butchert hit the switch that was supposed to stop the propeller spinning. The propeller did slow, but it did not stop. Then, it started spinning again, this time even faster than the other engines. If it spun too fast, it would break apart. Their aircraft needed to hold an airspeed of 210 miles per hour to launch its skyrocket payload, and the B-29 could not land with the skyrocket attached to its belly. Armstrong and Butchert brought the aircraft into a nose-down alignment to increase speed, then launched the skyrocket. At the instant of launch, the number four engine propeller disintegrated. Pieces of it damaged the number three engine and hit the number two engine. Butchart and Armstrong were forced to shut down the number three engine due to damage and the number one engine due to the torque it created. They made a slow, circling descent from 30,000 feet using only the number two engine and landed safely. Here's how Neil remembered it in 2011. I was a pilot of uh, one of the two pilots, the B-29, carrying a rocket out uh, aircraft to altitude where we'd release the airplane and it would go doing the testing and we were just providing the service to get, get the uh, rocket airplane up to a starting point. Uh, and we were somewhere up above uh, 30,000 feet when the governor on one of the propellers failed and the uh, propeller started running away, that is, going faster and faster and faster. And, of course, at some point in time, it's going to uh, explode. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had the choice of either slowing down to try to s slow down the propeller or speeding up so that we could drop the rocket. Uh, we chose the latter, dropped the rocket, and almost instantaneously, instantaneously thereafter, the propeller exploded and blades cut through the 
it was the right far right engine, cut through the number three engine, cut through the fuselage and the number two engine, and left only the, the num number one engine running. Uh, that's uh, an uncomfortable position, <laughs> uh, one out of four. But fortunately, we had a lot of altitude, and uh, we had a big dry lake bed not too far away where we, where we could land so we could make a very gentle, very, make very gentle turns and uh, keep the power back and uh, sort of make a gliding approach into the uh, landing area. Now, the, the, the second pilot, so his control cables had been cut by the propeller, so he, his controls were of, of no use whatever. I, I still had control, so I was flying the uh, airplane and he was doing the thinking. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and when we got to the ground and looked at the airplane uh, afterwards, we found that my cables had been cut too, but there were still a few strands of the cable left. So we were very fortunate uh, to, uh, to have survived that situation. When Armstrong moved to Edwards Air Force Base, he initially lived in the bachelor's quarters at the base while Janet lived in the Westwood district of Los Angeles. But after one semester, they moved into a house in Antelope Valley. Armstrong's first flight in a rocket plane was on August 15, 1957, in the Bell X-1B, to an altitude of 11.4 miles. The nose landing gear broke on landing, which had happened on about a dozen previous flights of the Bell X-1B due to the aircraft design. Armstrong later flew the North American X-15 seven times. His penultimate flight reached an altitude of 207,500 feet. Armstrong was involved in several incidents that occurred in Edwards folklore and were chronicled in the memoirs of his colleagues. The first occurred during his sixth X-15 flight on April 20, 1962, when Armstrong tested a self-adjusting control system. He flew to a height of over 207,000 feet, the highest he flew before Gemini 8, but the aircraft nose was held up too long during descent, and the X-15 bounced off the atmosphere back to the 140,000 feet level. At that altitude, the air was so thin that the aerodynamic surfaces had almost no effect. He flew past the landing field at Mach 3 at over 100,000 feet in altitude and ended up 40 miles south of Edwards. After sufficient descent, he turned back toward the landing area and barely managed to land without striking Joshua trees at the south end. It was the longest X-15 flight in both time and distance from the ground track. Four days later, Armstrong was involved in a second incident when he flew the only time with Chuck Yeager. Their job, flying a Lockheed T-33 shooting star, was to evaluate Smith Ranch Dry Lake for use as an emergency landing site for the X-15. In Jaeger's autobiography, he wrote that he knew the lake bed was unstable for landings after recent rains, but Armstrong insisted on flying out anyway as they attempted a touch-and-go.
The wheels became stuck and they had to wait for rescue. Armstrong tells a different version of the events, where Jaeger never tried to talk him out of it and they made a first successful landing on the east side of the lake. Then Jaeger told him to try again, this time a bit slower. On the second landing, they became stuck, and according to Armstrong, Jaeger was in fits of laughter. Many of the test pilots at Edwards praised Armstrong's engineering ability. Milt Thompson said he was the most technically capable of the early X-15 pilots. Bill Dana said Armstrong had a mind that absorbed things like a sponge. Those who flew for the Air Force tended to have a different opinion, especially people like Chuck Yeager and Pete Knight, who did not have engineering degrees. Knight said that pilot engineers flew in a way that was more mechanical than it was flying, and gave this as the reason why some pilots got into trouble. Their flying skills did not come naturally. A few weeks later, on May 21, 1962, Armstrong was involved in what Edwards' folk folklore called the Nellis Affair. He was sent in a Lockheed F-104 starfighter to inspect Delmar Dry Lake in southern Nevada, again for emergency landings. He misjudged his altitude and also did not realize that the landing gear had not fully extended. As he touched down, the landing gear began to retract. Armstrong applied full power to abort the landing, but the ventral fin and landing gear door struck the ground, damaging the radio and releasing hydraulic fluid. Without radio communication, Armstrong flew south to Nellis Air Force Base, past the control tower, and waggled his wings the signal for a no-radio approach. The loss of hydraulic fluid caused the tail hook to release, and upon landing, he caught the arresting wire attached to an anchor chain and dragged the chain along the runway. It took 30 minutes to clear the runway and rig an arresting cable, and Armstrong telephoned Edwards and asked for someone to come and get him. Milt Thompson was sent in an F-104B, the only two-seater available, but a plane Thompson had never flown. With great difficulty, Thompson made it to Nellis, but a strong crosswind caused a hard landing, and the left main tire suffered a blowout. The runway was again closed to clear it and Bill Dana was sent to Nellis in a T-33 shooting star. But he almost landed long, and the Nellis Base Operations Office decided that to avoid any further problems, it would be best to find the three NASA pilots' ground transportation back to Edwards. As a research pilot, Armstrong served as project pilot on the F-100 Super Sabre A and C variants, the F-101 Voodoo and the Lockheed F-104A Starfighter. He also flew the Bell X-1B, the Bell X-5, North American X-15, F-105 Thunder Chief, 
F-106 Delta Dart, B-47 Stratojet, KC-135 Strato Tanker, and was one of the eight elite pilots involved in the Paraglider Research Vehicle Program, Parasev. Armstrong made seven flights in the X-15 from November 1960 to July 1962. He reached a top altitude of 207,500 feet in the X-15 and a top speed of Mach 5.74, 3,989 miles per hour. In the X-15-1, he left the Dryden Flight Research Center with a total of 2,450 flying hours, and over his career, he flew more than 200 different models of aircrafts including jets, rockets, helicopters, and gliders. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 206 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, Commander Neil Armstrong, Part 1. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thanks, Patreon donors, everyone honored their pledge this month. We had 100% follow-through. Thank you so much, Patreon donors. I had a couple afterthoughts about this week's episode. Did you remember that Neil was a musician? I had temporarily forgotten that. He played in the school band and learned to play the piano as well. I guess that's just another aspect of the humble and shy Mr. Armstrong. (laughs) But... Neil did have a wit and a sense of humor. Here's a clip to prove it. One last one from me. I got a question for me. I want, there's one thing I want to know. There's one thing I want to know since the day you agreed to come. And uh, as I mentioned to you, we live on a house, top of a hill, and we get so many great views of the sky at night. And here's the question that's just been, every time I go home and I see the moon, this is the question I've been wanting to ask you. It's a crystal clear November evening, little nip in the air. It's just as clear as can be, and you're driving home, and you get out of your car, and you look up, like that, and you see this this image like this. Okay, um, what what comes to your mind? What what jumps to your what jumps to your mind? Girls. <laughs> okay, that interviewer was expecting a serious 
answer about a very serious question that he's wanted to know for a long time. And uh, so he sets up that question, and uh, Neil just responds with, Girls? <laughs> you can tell. He has a sense of humor. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the last couple of weeks. Sonny S. from Kansas donated well above the Orion level. Thank you, Sonny, very, very much for that generous donation. I sincerely appreciate it. Carl C. from Australia donated at the Vostok level. Cameron B. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Graham M. from Australia sent a second donation for the year, and he is promoted to Apollo with all the emojis. Anton W. from Oregon donated at the Mercury level. Marcus S. from Germany donated at the Sputnik level. Hans M. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level, and Jonathan A. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Thank you so much, donors, this week. I sincerely appreciate that. That brings our total Patreons to 109, with a goal of reaching 150 before the end of the year. And our overall donors are at 158, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast. April funding was significantly down, but we're off to a good start in May. Let's see if we can make up for that April downturn. Keep in mind, you don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for $1 donation per month like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the home page and click on one of the links on the right side of the page at the top. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. I was pleased to see the podcast received six new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past couple of weeks. I'd like to thank The Higgs, KO964, AK Fish 88, Zophirus, K Dot, and Coaster 985. I appreciate your taking the time and effort to go over to iTunes, write a review, and giving the podcast the all important five star ratings. I thank you sincerely for that. I think there might have been an anonymous donor to, there too, I'm not sure. But if there was, thank you for uh, giving us the five-star rating. We sincerely appreciate that. want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so, like my retweeters, for April. And as a bonus, this list of retweeters will be read by Mrs. Space Rocket History. Hello, everyone. This is Mrs. SRH. Our retweeters are 1202 Alarm, 51 Airedale, Andy USA 18169, Ashley James Lee, Astronaut Snoopy, ATM Antarch, Auto Robo Bot, Mr. 
Beacon 63, Bert at Home, B-I-A-O-H-S 23, Bonner to You, Buddy P. Murphy, Bluebird B.C., Chris Towers, Captain Beardy, Craig Libert, David B. Nugent, Eric the Jones, Futurama King, Falcon 124, Hare Bush, Histcasts, Indy TM42, I. Tory, Jacob Hahn, James 2904, Jane Hards, Kadavi 1202, Keith Drinkwine, KESA Space, KHS Astronomy, Lanyard 73, Lucas C. Moore, Michael Hoadley, M. Lunyon, Marcus Volter, Minor Insight, Odent Sova Leono 2, Peewee 888, PJ Ward 58, Plunder 100, Pompeiator, Parkhurst P1, Rapid Mustang, Rocket Noob, Ray Buell, One Gloucester, Plinstable, Mulmac, POW Idaho, Skibby, Tartomatic, this is Alex Boyd, The Inns Podcast, William Bullock, Wayne Neville 75, We Martians, and We Have Miko. Thank you, retweeters, and thank you, Mrs. SRH. <laughs> I thought that'd be a treat to hear her every once in a while instead of just me all the time. If I missed anybody, let me know, and we'll get you next week. Now, this concludes the content for this episode, and you're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. I am going to continue to give the details of my Kennedy Space Center visit, so stick around if you want to hear that. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue with the amazing Mr. Neil Armstrong. In podcast news, April had the second highest downloads so far. The podcast was downloaded in 108 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most downloads in April. Number 1, U.S. Number 2, the U.K. Number 3, Germany. 4, Australia. 5, Canada. 6, Japan moves up to the 6th position. Sweden drops to the 7th position. New Zealand moves up to 8th. Number 9 is Ireland. And number 10 is the Netherlands. Big shout out to people in all those countries. Thank you for listening. In personal news, I want to continue telling you about my visit to the Kennedy Space Center. Actually, I visited about eight times. <laughs> so uh, I'll continue telling you over these over these episodes as we go along. Last week, or last episode, I spoke about the Saturn V Center. The thing that I went to see first, though, on when I went there was the Rocket Garden. They have Mercury, Gemini, Agena, and Apollo represented there. If you've never seen the real rockets, that is a very interesting exhibit to see, and I enjoyed it. And, of course, that's more of the space history that I like is right there. Now, also there, they have a couple of capsule mock-ups. Now, I think they're just made out of uh, plywood or something. They aren't anything special except you could kind of get a feel for the size of what the capsules were, and you, the kids can hop in. Or heck, you can hop in if you want to. <laughs> now, I was most impressed with the Saturn 1B. 
they had that laying on its side so you could get a good look at it. And I was told that it is the only Saturn 1B left in the world. That is it. And all the other ones were used. And there are future plans to add commercial flight rockets to the rocket garden. That will be coming, and it will be some SpaceX, I believe. There are guided tours of the rocket garden that start at regular intervals. I, I can't remember it was 20 minutes or 30 minutes, something like that. Somebody will walk over there, and they'll just guide you through. It takes about 15 minutes for the tour. Next, we visited the Heroes and Legends building, which opened in late 2016. It was a beautiful building with a lot of space rocket history. The old pioneers are there, and the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame is also there. It has the high-tech elements and special effects that they've used very well there, and you can interact virtually with nearly 100 astronauts. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a fantastic building there. Every day at KSC, visitors are given the opportunity to meet an astronaut. Most of these astronauts are of the shuttle era. There is a live astronaut encounter show and an autograph signing session in the space shop. And for a little extra money, you can have lunch with an astronaut. And we did this and we met John McBride. He's uh, 73 years old now and he was of the shuttle era. There were about, I want to say, a hundred people at that event. And, uh, Kennedy Space Center serves a very good buffet lunch. I was surprised. It was really good. And they have a choice of beverages, including Tang. <laughs> While you're eating, the astronauts uh, show you the slides and answer questions. And then after everybody's finished, you can go outside and they've got a background there. And the astronaut will st stand in front of it and you can get in line and go get your picture taken with him. So that was, that was really fun. And that, I thought it was worth the extra money. And uh, now moving along here, we have the uh, Journey to Mars building. KSC is really emphasizing Mars now. In this building, they have a live theater, interactive experiences, and a large-scale multimedia presentations to educate and inspire the Mars generation. What's the Mars generation? Well, I ask what the target demographic was for this museum and was told it was 8 to 14 years old. They are considered the Mars generation. Now there are a lot of interactive things to do there and I enjoyed it even though I'm not 8 to 14. <laughs> it wasn't just kids doing all those interactive stuff, let me tell you. There were plenty of adults doing it too. Okay, I'm running so long on this episode, I'm going to pause on the visit and hopefully finish up with the KSC visit next week. Then I got a few really fun things extra that I did I want to tell you about that was really once-in-a-lifetime things. Okay, that's all I have for this week. Hope to have episode 207 up by next Thursday. So long for now.